you have an 18 month old daughter, like life is too crazy. It's not crazy. Like you just don't see what I see. And the more you tell me that I can't do it, the more I feel like I have to go do it. Because if I'm not the one to do it and I see someone else do it, I'll never be able to live with myself. That's Anne Murico, co-founding partner of Floodgate, a seed stage VC firm. They support founders who defy conventional wisdom often before others believe in their idea. We talk about going with your gut, how you can't test for human potential, and how the journey is more valuable than the plan. I'm Maureen Taylor, and this is Think Like a Founder. So as I understand it, you come from a line of PhDs and business leaders. So that's what success has always looked like to you. And when you were growing up, did that affect you or did it influence you on what you wanted to be when you grew up? Absolutely. I think it's no surprise that your family, your relatives influence what success looks like, what you believe you're capable of. And all of these things were very much true for me. I think the strange part was having my father be this rocket scientist at NASA and coming from uncles who had largely been in the technology sector, whether it was in car manufacturing or other things. And then on my mother's side, merchants, they sold office supplies. Having seen all of this firsthand, I actually turned when I was little to wanting to see something more tangible. And so I remember telling my mom that I wanted to be a farmer. I wanted to grow things. And I remember my mom being surprised because I had not exhibited exactly a green thumb. I, I still have yet to exhibit that. But I really wanted to do something that felt like you could grow something that felt really real. And so I do remember that as my most original dream. Anne got a little bit older and decided being a farmer wasn't for her. After this sort of farmer thing came and went, I decided I really wanted to be a doctor. It felt like such a noble thing. You're saving lives, you're understanding the human body And while most kids were really grossed out by blood and gore, I I could watch it all day. And I, I do remember that scene where my brother got this massive gash on his forehead and my mother's rushing to take him to the doctor. And so I'm kind of going along. I must have been, I don't know, six or seven years old. And I looked at the doctor and I said, if you're gonna give him stitches, can I stay here and watch? And the doctor was like, mortified by the whole thing. I think he did kick me out. And I was this kid who who had a lot of dreams and a lot of interests and I couldn't really pick the thing. But being a doctor was nice because you knew that if you took this, these certain classes, you had to take organic chemistry and chemistry and biology and physics, then you just had to take the MCATs, then you had to go to medical school Then you would do residency and fellowship. It was just like your whole life was neatly planned out for you. And you just had to do well in school, which was something that I was pretty good at. And so it felt like a 
an easy path to a noble profession. And I think I just got kind of caught in that. And it took a bit for me to like shake myself out of it. But then you did go along the path and you you were on the doctor path and dedicated to it for a while. And then you did just realize that it was not for you. I was studying electrical engineering already. And I was, I was on this medical school path. And there was this moment where I realized I wasn't on the medical school path anymore. My best friend is this wonderful human being. Her name is Kathy Smith. Like even in college where people would come in and they would say, is Kathy here? And they would go through my room to her room and they would, they would pour out their secrets, their pain, the things that they were worried about. And she was a listener. You know, she was this incredible, empathetic, wonderful human being. And we would study for the MCATs together. And one day I look over to her and I realize, like, I'm having this series of realizations. She is so much more empathetic when listening to someone complaining than I am. Like if something is in someone's control and they're not doing something about it, it just eats at me. And I just want to tell them, pull yourself together, you know, (laughs) go do something about it. And she's like the last person who ever say that. And I remember I also walked into the department of undergraduate health at my school because I had chicken pox that summer. And and there was something about the smell and the lighting where I remember I said, oh, this is not my place. I don't like being here. And there are so many other places I like being that when I was evaluating like, okay, do I actually want to be a doctor? Is that core to who I am and the things that I'm good at and the things that I like? I realized no way. After Anne realized she didn't want to be a doctor, she wasn't sure where she would go next. Then one day, while working in the dean's office, serendipity struck. And so I was lost for a long time. I'm working in the dean's office, and I'm doing filing. And the dean pops his head out. He was a really kind of gruff old man. He always wore a bow tie and a suit. D. Allen Bromley. And he had worked for Bush Sr. as the, the director of the Office of Science and Technology Policy. So I was kind of terrified of him. And he leans out the door. He says, I need a favor. And he says, I need someone to take my friend on a tour of the engineering department. So I take his friend and I'm showing him all the facilities, the places we do research, the different professors' offices. And we got into this really great conversation. And he asked me where I was from. And I'm from Palo Alto. And it turns out he was from Palo Alto. And when I said this, he said, do you want to come and see what I do for a living? And this is just a perfect moment because I was kind of trying to figure out what I would do. I said, what do you do? And he said, I'm the CEO of Hewlett Packard. That's so awesome. And 1996, like Hewlett Packard was Silicon Valley. And so I kind of like looked at him stunned and I said, I think that would be pretty interesting. And for a week, this guy, the CEO of probably a Fortune 50 company, drove me around in his Ford Taurus as he went from meeting to meeting and just allowed me to see things that I would have never had a chance to see. And he gave me that chance. And when I got back to my dorm, he had sent me two pictures One was a picture of him, Lou Platt, sitting next to Bill Gates. 
and they're in deep in conversation. And then the next picture was Lou Platt. And then I was sitting exactly where Bill Gates would have been sitting. It taught me so much in that one week of what mentorship is. You don't mentor someone to get something back. You mentor someone to put something into the world. He was just giving me a gift that I'm not even sure he even realized what he did, but it set me on a totally different path and like put a dream in my head. I mean, to this day, every time I tell the story and I tell it a lot, I like tear up just thinking about what he did for me. Wow. There's something that we have found with research, being one, working with them, that there is something peculiar about founders. Nature. There, there is a quirky thing. Some people call it a little crazy. There is an itch that seems like it has to be scratched. And the search for what it is that the purpose will connect, not just to have a career, like why maybe the doctor thing, even though it was the perfect uh, path and it made sense, uh, wouldn't be enough. You point out a few things that I think are interesting there. So first of all, I was a horrible test taker in elementary school. And in my PhD program, I was talking to a group of women exactly about this, that in elementary school, I had always had a problem with standardized tests. And my mother had to like beg my way into the gifted and talented program. And it turned out that in this group of eight or nine PhDs in technical things, so it was all science and engineering PhDs and postdocs, there was an unreal number of women who had their mothers advocate for them in elementary school because they were terrible test takers. I still carry that with me because... I think it's important to point out that there is no test for human potential. There never has been, there never will be. And so you either need to have someone who really believes in you and instills that human potential, that knowledge of human potential in you, or you have to find it yourself. And sometimes the tests break you and sometimes sometimes you find a way around it. And I think for me, I found a mother who was my biggest fan. And then I also found my way around it. That's one thing. And the second thing is that for me, there was this journey into the world of entrepreneurship. And you talked a little bit about this winding road. And I like to think of careers as emergent. I encounter so many students who are like, okay, what's the next step? And what's like 10 steps forward and they're plotting their trajectory. And sometimes you miss the journey. And sometimes the best parts of the journey are ones that you can't even rationalize to yourself. It's just something that your your stomach is telling you, you got to do. And when someone else says, okay, tell me more about why, the words don't even appear. And a great example that actually was the PhD program. I had been working for five years. Some people were saying, hey, go work for Google pre-IPO. It's 2003. And I talked about this with my husband. I said, you know, I have some offers to go to work at a tech company. Or the other option is I'm going to stick myself in a PhD for 
who knows how many years and I'm going to get paid $25,000 a year. Like, isn't that awesome? And I remember my husband just looking at me. He said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, you know, I really need to go scratch this itch. And it's the only way I could describe it. It was an itch. Like I really had to go do it. And he was like, who cares what other people think? You should go do that. While Anne was at Stanford pursuing her PhD, she was a teaching assistant for a class where the professors were also founders. They had a reputation for being tough to work with, but that didn't stop Anne, and ultimately the class led her to finding her co-founder. I was like, bring it, let's go do this. And it turned out that these people were some of the most wonderful people that I ever worked for. They weren't always the kindest, but they were always the most generous. And they didn't treat me like a teaching assistant. They treated me like a, a fellow instructor, a professor. And that changed the way, not only the way I viewed myself, but what was possible. And so as I was thinking about starting my own company, these exact teachers and mentors then came around me and said, you know, You've been in the ivory tower for four years. They said, just get a sense of what's going on in the environment. It was incredible advice. And so I went and contacted someone who had been in this class as a guest instructor. And he was nice enough to say, sure, why don't you come every Wednesday? So I go on every Wednesday and I'm looking at these companies with this guy, Mike Maples. He's an angel investor. And one day in early 2008, he turns to me and he says, you know, Anne, this isn't that venture-backed company that you're pursuing, but I just raised some money and now I have a fund. And if you want to be my co-founder, we can do a backed venture startup. Everyone wants to put in $5 million into companies and grab 50%. We're going to do a new model, $500,000, and it's going to be 10% of the company. We have a different value proposition. And there was probably four or five other people doing this exact same strategy, but not that many. And there was a financial crisis. And most people said, hey, Anne, don't do this. And I remember that's when I became stubborn. You know, mm -hmm. my mom is telling me, you haven't even finished your PhD. You have an 18 month old daughter, like life is too crazy. And I think founders feel this when they're going through starting up a company. They say, it's not crazy. Like, you just don't see what I see. And the more you tell me that I can't do it, the more I feel like I have to go do it. Because mm -hmm. if I'm not the one to do it, and I see someone else do it, I'll never be able to live with myself. Absolutely. So, you know, there's, there's somebody in particular, a young you sitting out there right now, listening to this, maybe driving, maybe emailing, maybe doing something. They're a little bit nervous. They have that itch. They don't even know how to scratch it. What advice do you give her? The best advice that I actually got in my youth was to trust your gut. And I remember I used to live in my head a lot. I was always thinking and I still, one of those people, I have conversations with my head all the time in my head. And one of my good friends just said at some point, you know, Anne, you have a pretty good gut. You should trust it more. 
And it was such an important thing to have someone say to me that I had a good gut and then I should listen to it more. And I think actually most people have pretty good gut instinct. When someone is saying you can't do that and you have a little voice inside of you that says, maybe you can, you should listen to that. When you have other people telling you, you should take that job and yet your voice inside your head says, you really shouldn't, you shouldn't take that job. The mistakes that I've made are usually around when I'm being more logical than I am being intuition driven. I'll give you an example. My foray into to going to law school, my application to law school was all in my head. I said I was really good in high school at speech and debate, and I'm pretty good at this tech thing. And so naturally, I should become a patent attorney. That would have been the worst thing for me to be. But it's very logical. It makes a lot of sense. But it doesn't make intuitive sense. I still know me better than anyone else does. And I think sometimes people's judgment gets clouded by the voices around them. And you, you start to hear other people's voices louder than your own. Sometimes you know yourself better than the world can. And this goes back to there's no test for human potential. You are the test for human potential. Mm -hmm. And you just have to figure out a way to return to that voice inside of you. And if you can, you will be very successful. That was Anne Murico, co-founding partner of Floodgate, a seed stage VC firm. They support founders who defy conventional wisdom, often before others even believe in their idea. I'm Maureen Taylor. Thanks for listening. Next time on Think Like a Founder, I talk to the founders of Fonobio, Ashley Zender, Katie Grabeck, and Linda Goodman. Fonobio studies genes in hibernating animals to find cures for humans. Think Like a Founder is produced by SNP Communications in San Francisco, California. Learn more by visiting us at snpnet.com or connect with me, Maureen Taylor, on LinkedIn to continue the conversation there. Series producer is Roisin Hunt. Sound design by Mark Ream. Creative producer, Eli Shell. Content and scripting by Mike Sullivan. Production coordination, Natasha Thomas. Thanks also to Selena, Persiani Shell, John Hughes, and Ren Vara. This is Think Like a Founder. <laughs>